So today we will be in Amos 6. So if you want to preemptively turn there in your Bible, uh, I'm going to start the message today with a historical illustration. Any history buffs in the room? Anybody? Who just loves history? You guys are embarrassing me. Okay. So uh, I'm going to say I would like our younger folks to answer this question, all right? Older folks, you might already know this, you might not, but I want to say, let's just make the cutoff a very arbitrary number. I'm 32 years old, so let's say 35 and under. This is your time to shine, okay, to answer this historical question. So uh, I'm going to give you a scenario and ask you for the name of this world leader. That's going to be where this goes. I'm going to ask you for the name. So the year was 1938. Tensions had been mounting over the threat of an increasingly restless and hostile Germany led by Adolf Hitler. There was your easy answer, it's not him. They clearly had their eye on expanding the borders to annex Czechoslovakia. Europe was growing very tense. Nobody wanted to repeat the horrors of World War I just happened two decades earlier. Well, a meeting occurred in the German city of Munich with Hitler and the leaders of Britain, Italy, and France. One of the leaders arrived back home stood before a crowd of jubilant onlookers after this potentially tense meeting between the leaders. He came back, held paperwork in the air, signed by the four nations, flapping in the breeze, to cheers of a raucous crowd, and he read aloud some of the contents, which I'll, I'll read a few of those lines for you now, portions of that reading. We regard the agreement signed last night and the new Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire for our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. And later he said, we are determined to continue our efforts to remove possible sources of difference and thus contribute to assure the peace of Europe. Three cheers of hip hip hooray and songs of for he's a jolly good fellow broke out all across the crowd. He left the crowd dispersed. Later, in a, another gathering outside of his second floor window, a crowd gathered to cheer some more, and he spoke to the cheering crowd these now infamous words, I believe it is peace for our time. So, 35 and under, which world leader is infamous for stating the phrase, peace for our time? Who? Yes, sir. Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain. He got it. That's correct. So the answer is Neville Chamberlain. So less than one year after the Munich agreement, Adolf Hitler took Czechoslovakia. He did the unthinkable following this. He completely obliterated the, the peace agreement. Germany marched on Poland. And as you know, the horrors of World War II began. Neville Chamberlain was forced to resign. And another man took his role. What was the name of that man? Churchill. Winston Churchill. Very good. He took office with an uphill battle to face. Two movies actually came out not too long ago about that. Dunkirk and The Darkest Hour. Excellent movies, I might say. I hope I didn't endorse something bad. But I, those are really good movies. Uh, war was declared. World War II was upon them. And the point I'm making is so much for peace in our time, right? I want that illustration to color the way that you think as we discuss Amos 6 today. As I studied this chapter, I saw many themes, indifference and apathy to harsh realities, a false sense of security in the world, wasted time, resources, 
fiddling our lives away while Rome is burning, feeling no sorrow over things of which we should. The Christian life calls us to many things, but indifference and complacency are not one. We ought to be alert and ready to meet the challenges that this world throws at us, clothed with the readiness and sober-mindedness and preparedness. The people of Israel were not. That's what we're going to see today. But as the theme that we've been using throughout this series, as we've seen their shortcomings, is to look at ourselves and say, but we don't have to go down that road. We don't have to repeat their mistakes. That's the value of learning from history. My hope is that we, could, uh, that we would not put our trust in false assurances of peace in our time. Before we read God's word, pray with me today. Lord, we pray that you would move in a living and active way today. May your word pierce through with sharpness like a two-edged sword. Lord, show us something today beyond what's just readily accessible and available at the surface level, God. Point out something in your life through your spirit that only you can do. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Amos 6. We'll be focusing on verses 1 through 8 today. Last week, we studied chapter 5. If you were here with us, you remember it was about God's rejection of Israel's worship. Uh, God saw their worship not as authentic, not from the heart, not as an outflowing of their lives, but basically meaningless ritual. And we don't want that for our lives either. Today, God through Amos continues with two additional woes of judgment in chapter 6, expanding upon one of the particular sin categories that we've covered so far. He's going to expand upon that, one of the categories of the elites of Israel's sin. The best way that I can summarize this complex category of sin, if you had to, say, tie a bow around it, what is being described today, it would be this, indifference by pleasure. You might want to write that down. Indifference by pleasure. In other words, the people of Israel were so hedonistic, they were so effective at pleasure-seeking, so committed to their own gratifications being met on demand, that they built up a tolerance, and in so doing, they were indifferent and apathetic to everything that actually mattered in life. Their priorities were so self-focused, their safety, their pleasure, their wealth, their comforts, their finer things, their hours and hours of wasted time, that the weighty and significant things of life came knocking, and they were unable to discern. The enemy armies of Assyria were building and coming upon them, and they were unable to even discern the danger, the destruction. When God spoke, they could not hear. Therefore, when destruction was coming, they did not fear, and they should have. That's not what I want for you, church, in your life. I know Assyria's armies are not necessarily marching upon your doorstep, but in our lives, we certainly have impending moments of destruction that can come, seeking the, Satan and the world and sin, seeking to unravel our lives, seeking to bring us down, seeking to make us and render us ineffective for the kingdom of God. I don't want that for your families. I don't want you to be careening down a path of destruction like Israel, all the while being gleeful about how awesome our lives are. Israel was blind to their destruction. They were indifferent to the word of God. So I want to show you three ways today that we can blind ourselves to destruction in this life. And these are things to be avoided. All right. So don't read this as I'm going to go home and do these three things. These are three bad things. Okay. So number one, we blind ourselves to destruction when we find safety in our own strength. 
when we find safety in our own strength. That's number one for the note takers. Sermon gets 47% better when you take notes. Survey by me. Look with me at Amos 6, 1 through 3. This is a classic line. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria, the notable men of the first of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Then the scene shifts to other nations. Pass over to Kalna, see, go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath, you recognize that one, of the Philistines. Are you better than any of these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seed of violence. Let me make some sense of this ancient prophecy. We'll pause there. First, that word woe. Here's an easy trivia question. Is woe good? Is woe good? When you hear that, should you get excited? No. Woe is a funeral lament. It's spoken to indicate distress. The prophets use them as judgment indicators. All right? You don't want anyone saying woe to you. Not God, not Jesus. It's not good things. So two descriptors here of the recipients of the woe. My translation says to those who are at ease. That, this is where the woe's going. To those at ease and to those who feel secure. So if you're drawing little dotted lines from the woe, that's where they're going. If we do our Hebrew homework here, we see that this word at ease, the Hebrew behind it, refers to carefree self-confidence. So careless self-confidence. Twice in the Old Testament, this word is translated to complacent. The other word is actually a phrase. It's, it's one of those cool times when it takes about five English words to describe one Hebrew word. That whole phrase, those, to those who feel secure, comes from one Hebrew word that means one's trusting in. Okay, so woe to those trusting in. Now look at your Bible. What are they trusting in? What do you, I heard somebody say it. What is it? The mountain. I heard the mountain of Samaria. That was right. You said it. They're trusting in the mountain of Samaria. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've sat under good preaching and teaching, you at least know enough Christianese and Bibleese not to ever say that your trust is in something else other than God. See, that's a problem. We know the language, but they were so bold, they were just out with it. Our trust is in this mountain. You know the Bible answer for where Christians are to put their trust and faith is some version of we trust in the name of Jesus. Maybe you would say we trust that the word of God is true. You might say we trust the faithfulness and promises of God are true. Maybe you've even heard the classic Psalm 20 verse 7, which reads, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You heard that before? In other words, a biblical worldview places ultimate and final trust in God in his plans for our safety and security. Now, this didn't mean that Israel was going to have no army, no horses. It didn't say, go throw all your army over the edge of the, the, the cliffs. No, it didn't say that. They had chariots. They had armies. Obviously, they had those things, just like we have. Some of y'all got firearms. I know you do. You take medicine. I know you do. You wear seatbelts. I know you do. But there has to be a point in our heart where we know that though we do those things, Ultimately, whatever God wants to do in our lives, he will do. We have to know that. If God wants us to be safe and secure, we will be. But if God has purposes in our life that exalt his name and give him glory, that come through the avenue of our pain, well, he might do that too. That can happen as a part of his divine will. So what was Israel doing? 
their trust was in a mountain. It's kind of like the dwarves in The Hobbit. If we could just get back to that mountain, the lonely mountain, the ravens, they're returning to Arabor. They're coming, right? Literally, there was a mountain fortress in Samaria that was difficult to siege. This really was there because of its topography, because of its strategic advantage. And the leaders of Samaria put all their eggs into that basket. Nothing bad can happen to us. Do you see this fortress? Look at this. We got it. Leaders of Samaria began to believe that this mountain, the topography, was their salvation. That whether or not, they began to believe whether or not God is even fighting for us and on our side will still be good because we've got this advantage. The mountain was their security. God says, woe to those complacent people feeling false security in the strength of this world. You who are holding your little Munich Agreement paperwork flapping in the breeze, proclaiming peace in our time, have no idea what is coming. The destruction that was clearly coming to Israel in the form of the Assyrian army was not in any way expected by Israel, even though the prophets had pelted them with truth. They believed this not because they had such unwavering trust in God to deliver them, not because they were doing the Joshua thing. We're not worried because we're strong and courageous, like you said. No, it wasn't that. It was because they lived lives of ease and complacency that they could not care. Those at ease whose trust is in the things of this world are fundamentally unable to discern the coming judgment of God. In verse 2, God references three other nations that were once great and powerful. You can read them there. The reason that he did that was that those nations, by the time of writing, were now defeated. So they were once great, now defeated, a shell of their former selves. And God is saying, what happened to them can happen to you. Don't ever think that, that you're forever going to be uh, protected. Things can happen. In verse 3, we see the phrase, O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster. They kept saying, ah, we're wealthy, we're safe, we're the chosen people, we're the city set on a hill. We've got all the advantages. They couldn't see God's judgment coming. Do you think that in your life you're going to be shielded? Do you think that for some reason in your life, maybe because of your connection, that you're going to be shielded from pain, hardship, or judgment because of maybe, let's say, your position at work, the income that you have? the nest egg that you've built, your 401k, your health, your good medical record, your family history, your bloodline, your education, your big old degree, or any of those things giving you your sense of safety and security in this life. I once heard it said, if you want to know what the idols are in your life, see what thing you most violently and viscerally react to when it's taken from you. This was the first way that Israel was blind to their own destruction. They had complete trust in their own man-made safety. What's next? Well, we can blind ourselves to destruction this way. Here's number two. We prioritize sustained satisfaction. We blind ourselves when we prioritize sustained satisfaction. We're going to look at Amos 6, 4 through 6a. I'm going to cut off that last little line. I got to I've got purposes for that little last line. Here we go. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls 
and anoint themselves with the finest oils. Now, you could read this as a general caution against wealth, and that would be good for that. The love of money, wasteful, opulent living, that's fine. But there's a little deeper layer to this. In chapter 6, it's that constant pursuit of living in a perpetual state of sustained satisfaction that was hindering people from living a meaningful life as well as recognizing their own destruction. So we saw in the first point that Israel became indifferent in their false safety. Here we see that they are indifferent in their pursuit of constant satisfaction of their basest desires. So let me just say here, if you can read this and don't just see this is our culture, you're missing it. This sounds like us, doesn't it? You could have said, Amos said this yesterday, and we would believe it. Uh, if you look at these verses, they're, they're a picture of someone who is living in absolute luxury. Uh, this is the stereotype sprawled out on the cabana with people fanning you, feeding you little grapes you know, from above your head. Uh, I don't know if y'all ever had that happen to you. It seems like a very strange way to eat grapes. I'm just going to put it out there. Above your head? Why would you do that? Anyway, it's just opulent for the sake of it, I guess. So, but anyway, Amos is kind of conjuring up this image where he's really just taking it over the top. In verse 4, we see beds inlaid with ivory. Uh, that's, and if you don't know what that is, that's what elephant tusks are made of. It's very hard to get. It's very expensive. Um, we have the image of being sprawled out on the couch. Now, I love this Hebrew word. It literally reads to hang over the side. That's what, they, that's what that word means. So it's like you ever just... This is not when you lay on the couch when you're at the therapist's office and you're kind of in that pencil shape laying on your back and you're telling your therapist all your problems. This is like when you're just at like the, the 15th level of sloppy at your house and your arms and legs are just over the side and there's a bag of chips sitting right on your stomach. This is that, okay? Uh, this hardcore lounging is what you should imagine in your mind. The Hebrew even implies sort of like shamefulness to it. The kind of, if you, you don't get it in English, but the Hebrew kind of has this connotation of like, you should be ashamed of yourself, you couch potato. That's sort of how it is. So then there's the mention of eating the best foods, the lamb and the veal daily. Uh, I read in, in one of my commentaries that the average Israelite citizen probably had meat only three times a year. So it was very expensive. In a lot of places in the world, that's still the case, by the way. When I go to India, visit them. Most of them, well, they're vegetarian for other reasons, but if they weren't, it's still quite expensive to come up with meat in a lot of places. Um, so the, the elites of society, boy, they had, they had the New Zealand rack of, of lamb every single day if they wanted it. Uh, veal marsala on speed dial. And, uh, you know, it's always a reminder that sometimes the leaders, you know, they, they protect themselves without making sure that the people got any of that. Uh, they had the choicest meats anytime they wanted. Verse 5, at a read, may sound like, if you look at that, like an indictment of musicians or songwriting, and, uh, or even against David, okay? It is not that. Uh, if you look at, I, I like the New Living Translation sometimes. If you kind of wonder, like, what's my alternate kind of paraphrase-ish Bible? I think the New Living Translation is my favorite. I like it way more than the message, just for the record. It says this, you sing trivial songs to the sound of the harp. And fancy yourselves to be great musicians like David. I like that reading of it. This, this fair reading is that these elites and leaders had so much free time that they would sit around, not intentionally composing psalms or, or spiritual songs for the worship of God's people, 
but plunking away on idle tunes, probably what we would call the equivalent of bar songs. They wasted their time writing worthless ditties suited for drunken singing that brought no glory to God. And in verse 6, we see that they drink wine, not in cups or glasses, but in bowls. Bowls. Now, I'm not a drinker, so like, I feel like I'm out of my league. I wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. But I have been to the restaurants where I've seen them bring out like this thing where you hold it like this, and there's like a bottle sticking out of the top, and it's got like this, it's bright blue, and it's got salt all around. If y'all know what I'm talking about, shame on you. Let me just say that. <laughs> I looked out, and people were like, yeah, yeah, seen that before. <laughs> but no, there, the, there was two elements to this phrase uh, in, in, in this phrase bowls, first of it was just the size, that it was a, a lot of alcohol being consumed by them. Uh, but secondly, it is the same word that they used for the bowls in the temple. So it's possible that there was some sacrilege going on here, that they were kind of drinking out of temple bowls that were used tr- traditionally for worship. Uh, and lastly, apparently, if you look at that last line about they have the, the, the lotions and the oils, they had the best skincare regimen. Uh, isn't it crazy how the wealthy people always just have nice skin? You know, us poor people, our pores are hanging all out. It's just not good. Uh, with, they had the fan- fanciest creams and lotions. We're not talking about Walmart and Bath and Body Works. We're talking about those French brands that people from Texas don't even know about. I don't even know how to find nice lotion. I, I looked online. I tried to find. I saw there was, you know, $5,000 bottles. I don't even know how to find that. Where could I even get that? You ever been in a store? Where <laughs> you ever walk into a store? And uh, you don't really know what kind of store you're going into. And then a very attractive person hands you a glass of a drink. And you think to yourself, I have walked into the wrong place. These are not my people. Uh, I'm, I'm way above my head here. So that, that's right. That is where the people of Israel bought their lotion. They were having the, all the fanciest of everything. So if we combine these three things, what's the picture being painted? You take all these things that we just said. The picture is... Someone who spends all day doing and getting exactly what they want. Someone who feeds their desires and never denies themselves. Someone who lives to indulge their feelings and pleasures, no matter what they are, and has the means to do so when they want. Is this not America? Is this not a picture of, of who we are? We have the wealth. I know it doesn't feel like it sometimes, but we do. We have the access to the finest things in the world. I've seen videos online, you probably have too, of people coming from other countries the first time they arrive here, and they'll just go to like a Walmart or an HEB, and it just, it's as if you just showed them the Grand Canyon for the first time. Their mind is just blown. They can't imagine all of these things. We eat meat every day, three times a year. <laughs> yeah, right. I know how much we eat meat. Come on. We waste incredible amounts of time because we don't have to work for our next meal. We have so much security and safety in our lives uh, that we can use a lot of that time to just sort of indulge ourselves on foolish stuff. Uh, we may not sit around playing the harp or dopey bar tunes, but in reality, we just, we do. We just, it's TV, internet, video games, smartphones, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, on and on and on. That's our, that's our harp sitting around playing Little, little tunes thinking we're like David. That's, that's the application. We are just as self-indulgent as this generation in the Bible, maybe more. And we have, we have drunkenness problems too. We, but unlike them, we have beer and hard liquor. They didn't even have that. 
We have opioid pills. They didn't have that. We have marijuana. We have hard drugs. We have pornography. They didn't have that. They had to go in person. Our screen time is like a drug for us. If there's something that we want to do or make us happy or make us feel better or take the edge off or to numb ourselves from the reality that we're bored and sad with our lives and we don't know what to do about it, we just do it. We just take that pill, push that button, watch that show, whatever. We do whatever we have to do to adjust the way we feel. We self-medicate, most often with our screens. The picture that Amos gives here is someone who has indulged their flesh so much that they are functionally numb to danger in life. And when you get to a certain point of laziness and excess in life, all you really want is to just do more and more of it. Because it's like with a drug, your tolerance level rises, and you're going to constantly need more. This picture painted is not at all what God wants for your life. You should know that. 1 Peter 5.8 says the exact opposite. Be sober-minded, ready, and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's the reality of our world. What does it mean? It means we aren't supposed to drift through life in a fog of useless pleasure, drunk high and staring at our phones, dancing to viral videos. We are to be sober-minded, on task, on mission, watching for temptation, and taking the world and our families for Christ. That's what our purpose is. Why? Because Satan exists to take you out. Sometimes you just got to say stuff to kind of break the, get yourself out of the fog. Satan's whole mission in life is to take you out, to wreak havoc on you and your family. Do you think that you're going to have the strength that you need to stare down the roaring lion, half drunk and on your 800th TikTok video of the day and on your 13th hour of video games? I mean, come on. In the 1800s, missionaries were known for going to India and Africa and Myanmar with the gospel, giving their lives away to disease and starvation. I know we're not to December yet, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Lottie Moon was an unmarried woman with less than five feet tall. Some say she's like four, eight. She learned Greek, Latin, French, Italian, and Chinese and went to inland China at age 32 to give her life to serving Christ through sharing the gospel and planting churches. Contrast that with today, the culmination of American success is whether you can climb a pyramid of milk crates without breaking your neck, right? A sign that we are becoming, just like the culture denounced by Amos, is that we simultaneously care about worthless things with great passion while ignoring truly consequential things in life. Israel couldn't spare a moment to listen to Amos telling them, Assyria is coming to blow the doors off, but they sure had time to order the veal marsala and make sure that they didn't miss their massage at the Samaria Sun Spa. Don't spend your life chasing a dopamine high. Don't waste your time on the mountains of Samaria, plucking away, drinking away, frittering away your life. Don't numb yourself with self-indulgence. Well, we've seen that we blind ourselves to destruction when we find safety in our man-made strength, when we prioritize sustained satisfaction, and lastly, number three, when we feel no sorrow of true significance. When we feel no sorrow of true significance. 
I want to read verses 4 through 6 again, but I'm going to tack on that little ending of 6b. Amos 6.4, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, stretch themselves out on their couches, eat lambs from the flock, calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David invent themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, here it is, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. To quote again from the New Living Translation, that last line is, but care nothing about the ruin of their nation. In other words, you've wasted all your care on worthless things that have no value. And so now when something actually matters, you're unable to care because you've wasted all your care on worthlessness. There's something broken in our life when we aren't broken by things that should grieve us. This is one of those tactics of the roaring lion, Satan, to inflict mass damage upon us. If we aren't grieved by sin, we don't see evil for what it is and we don't notice the warning signs of red flags in our life, we are in prime danger for being destroyed by the enemy. You know, there's a thing called normalcy bias. It's when we fail to notice an imminent threat because we want to continue to live like everything is normal. So for Israel, we know what their issue was. Historically, we know. Verse 6 says, God feels that they should be grieving over the ruin of Joseph. In other words, they're losing their land. All of the covenant promises are systematically being reversed and undone. They're losing their nation, and many of them are going to lose their lives. They didn't see the warning signs. They didn't care. They were too busy saying peace in our time. So, enough about them. What about you? What destruction in your life is clearly coming, and you should be grieving over it, but you've been fooling yourself about the significance of it. Maybe you've been numbing yourself with foolishness and wasted time to the point that you've been avoiding dealing with it. I don't know what your thing is. I'm going to toss you a couple that might be, and I'm going to let the Spirit do the rest if I don't get what you need. Are your kids starting to adopt a secular worldview? Do you notice more of a hostility to the Bible or to church in them? Or maybe just an indifference to their faith? Are you noticing more of the flavor of the world and the things that they say and do than the flavor of the gospel? Listen to me, destruction is coming if if something doesn't change. Act swiftly and decisively. Do not just assume things will work themselves out and keep on partying on the mountain of Samaria, singing la 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 to the sound of the harp. Nothing to see here, just the Assyrians coming to take my kids. Don't do it. Is your marriage dying on the vine? Are you and your spouse on a downward trajectory and you don't know how it's going to work out? Are you arguing all the time? Do you feel like it's just a matter of time until something bad happens? Listen, if you believe destruction is coming, act swiftly and decisively to save your marriage. Identify the source of stress or strain. Remove it. That's how a man talks, right? Fix it, right? I know there's two sides to this. Remove it. Fix it, and here it is, communicate with one another about what needs to be fixed. Have regular powwow meetings, open floor, no judgment, let's get it all out. What are you feeling? What are you seeing? What am I missing? What am I not doing? Get it all out there and fix it like your life depended on it, because it does. Listen, if you need to radically 
rearrange your life, do it. If you need to take a less stressful job than the one you have, or go to one income and downsize, you might have to sell your house to do that. You might have to move somewhere you don't want to move. But what are you going to do? If you need to leave the city and move out to a small town and go fishing on weekdays to save your marriage, do what you have to do. Don't let the Assyrians come take your marriage while you twiddle your thumbs on the mountain of Samaria. Do what you have to do. There's some cheap real estate out there somewhere. Not here, but somewhere. <laughs> hey, sometimes you've you got to do something crazy. Sometimes you've got to break the norm and save your marriage. If you've got to move, if you've got to leave this church, I will shake your hand on the way out and hug you and say, I absolutely understand. God bless you. Go do what you have to do. Is your faith, your walk with Christ, barely hanging on? Have you stopped praying? Has your Bible reading time dried up? Are you finding it harder and harder to make it to church? Do you isolate yourself from people who want to help you? Don't let that happen. Don't keep slipping away. Fight the good fight of faith. Press on toward the upward calling of the prize that Christ has laid out for you. Draw near to his presence where there is fullness of joy. What is it? Are you getting addicted to something? Are you addicted to something? Are you slipping into depression? Are you embedded in a sin that you've stopped grieving over because you've just counted it as part of life from here on out? There are certain things in life that ought to grieve us. If we can grieve the Holy Spirit with our actions, then it's good to grieve with him when we sin. Where is the enemy making an inroad in your life? Who are the Assyrians and how close are they? Where is there some settled indifference? in your life to destruction that's coming? What's something that you've made an excuse for? Will you deal with it this week through the power of Christ and Christian community? Will you deal with it? Listen, as we look back on this passage, we see a people who have consigned themselves to destruction and they don't even know it's coming so that they could fiddle their lives away while Rome was burning. When Adolf Hitler was marching on Poland, they refused to believe it and continued, but we've got the paper. But we've got this peace agreement, peace for our time. Christian peace will not be fully realized until Jesus returns. Until then, this life is a battle, and that's why we're told to put on the armor. Don't be blind to the pitfalls of life. Don't be blind to sin that easily ensnares you. Don't find safety in your own strength. Don't seek simple pleasures and simple satisfactions all day. Don't miss the red flags and warning signs of destruction that is coming for you, failing to grieve things that you ought to grieve about. The Christian life is full of many attributes that we are to pursue, but indifferent complacency is not one. Be alert, be on guard, be on mission. Follow Jesus, not your feelings. Be ready to meet the challenges that this world throws at you, clothed with the armor and power and readiness of Christ. Pray with me.